and you know we've we've already established that whenever we f- we record this podcast after immediately after it's recorded i completely blank on the info that we yes. talked about like i have no idea i love listening to this podcast on whatever platforms i do because i have no idea what i say your brain is like an etch a sketch in a dryer <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unbelievable, the podcast where today, Luis is visiting me again. We're in the same place. That's crazy, Kurt. I can once more look into your deep blue eyes and and feel the pangs of joy that overwhelm my entire body when I get to look at you. Hello, Kurt. And I can I can berate you in person, which oh, is so, so much more satisfying. I actually feel a physical influence of you yelling at me because uh, <laughs> I, can, I can feel your breath just hit me. <laughs> but that means that today we are off the clock. We're not doing our regular smoke and mirrors show. No, no misinformation today, no. just information. We're yeah. doing a True Tales episode, so some stories from the archives that were cut. Luis is going to tell a story, I've got a story, and then mayhaps we will also have some games at the end. Yeah, Ooh. we'll see. We're See, this is where, where they let us out. They take our leash off, and we're allowed to do whatever we want. We don't even have one of those, like, invisible fence uh, situations, right, with dogs that are yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like we don't get shocked or anything. We're just we're just allowed out. No, yeah, this is like a shock collar free episode. Mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, we're we're le- and, we're free uh, to And they go out. and they suspend Luis's house arrest so he can come yeah. up here. To yeah, no. Uh, th- this nice. this episode My house arrest pending. This episode is sponsored by my US visa allowing me to come here and record <laughs> this episode with you today. So, <laughs> without further ado, let's get into our stories because honestly, I do not want to wait 1 second longer to tell this story on the podcast. This is what I would say is my first idea for an unbelievable story because this is a story that I discovered before we even had the idea for the podcast. Really? Yeah. So uh, you may remember, Luis, that uh, once upon a time back when we lived together, I uh, discovered this information and got you and our other roommates together in our living room to yell at you for about 30 minutes about what I had learned. I mean, listen, y'all yelling at me for 30 minutes was just a constant thing in our apartment back in the day, so... That's true. I mean, I'm that's, ready. I'm ready to go true. back, feel the nostalgia of, of times gone by. That's true. But in this case, it really is like just a very nostalgic moment for me because this was kind of the first historical story that I found where I thought like, this is so weird. How have I never heard of this? And then the more I looked into it, the weirder it got. And when it came to the moment where we were talking about the idea for this podcast, this was one of the stories that I thought of when I was thinking like, we know things that are kind of interesting yeah. that are not very well known about. And, so, and, and to be fair we we always liked the, the stories we typically shared with we with each other were were stories that were typically the weird kind because frankly everyone knows about normal history but we like the, the fun bits we just yeah. liked we'd like to focus on that we yeah. it's maybe a skewed version of history but it's real history kurt and that's what matters yeah it's we want to hear about the lunatics that just went a little too far had a crazy idea that worked a little too well or the mishaps yeah. that what can you say yeah, i mean it's life. it's 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 like us right now right yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so like i said i can't wait any longer let's get into this let's do it and like i said this is a really wild story but before i get into the craziness of this let me tell you the actually fairly peaceful and wholesome history of a little substance called mummia Oh, yes. Yes, Mumia. Oh, I'm ready. I think I know where this is going. Mumia is a type of resinous bitumen that's found in Western Asia. Bitumen is this black, sticky, tar-like substance. It's Mm. actually what uh, modern roads are made out of, the like sticky, black, tar part. That's bitumen. Basically, mummia is a type of bitumen that's made from natural elements like plants and minerals that are found in Western Asia, and it was used medicinally in ancient Greece and the Persian Empire. They'd use it for healing cuts or scrapes um, because it would be kind of like uh, moleskin pads where it would yeah. be a bandage, but also for setting fractures or sealing open wounds because when it would harden, it would become rigid, so it could kind of be like athletic tape or a splint, and right. maybe the minerals in it had some sort of healing property too. I don't really know. But there's also reports of mummia being used for grafting trees, building walls, gluing things, or even sealing cracks. So it's like a super versatile substance, obviously. Yeah, someone say the mi- miracle 
miracle chemical of oh, the don't of the ancient carried times. away, Louise, please. <laughs> <laughs> so the Europeans first learned about mumia during the Crusades. Obviously, during the Crusades, there's a lot of wounds, a lot of wounds being treated. Yeah. And of course, pretty quickly, tales of the miraculous curing abilities of mumia start spreading. Before long, there is a new demand for mumia in Europe. The only problem with this is that mumia is kind of rare because, like I said, it only comes from these natural plants and minerals found in Persia and the Dead Sea region. So there's yeah. a limited natural supply. So European merchants start looking for other potential sources of mumia. Right. Now, this is where things go really, really bad. The first problem here is a series of mistakes, okay? First, let me tell you the truth of the situation, okay? So the ancient Egyptians used a type of bitumen during the mummification process to seal cuts on a body and also sometimes to help bandages stick together. This would be in very small quantities and it's just like a different bitumen. So just a different tar substance, mm. not mumia. They had like a sticky thing that they would use to seal up cuts and make bandages yeah. sticky, okay? Uh, 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 bitumen adjacent. Bitumen adjacent. Well, no, it is a bitumen. You know, it says you got to picture like the big the big family tree. There's bit <laughs> bitumens, many bitumens. It's a different bitumen. It's mumia, mumia adjacent. Yeah, 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 exactly. So mistake number one here is that due to some mistranslations, historians believe that Egyptian bitumen is mumia. They then build on this with some Egyptologists mistakenly identify the black masses that are filling the body cavity and the skulls of mummies as being mumia. This is not even bitumen at this point. Because remember I said bitumen, they're just using like to seal cuts and on the bandages. And they're like all this like black gunk up inside the bodies mm. is mumia, not even bitumen. Uh, I've got then, plenty of that, frankly. <laughs> And then the third mistake here is that people begin to blur the line between mumia and the cadaver. Oh. Uh, this is maybe aided by the mistranslations that I talked about before that kind of imply that mumia is created by adding oils and aloes to moist decaying flesh. So they're kind of saying that like in order to make mumia one of the key ingredients is a dead body. This of course is not true. You know, it's a, remember originally we were all natural plants and minerals. Right. But so yeah, we have now gotten to the point where this bitumen that the Egyptians used is mumia and it's all inside the bodies of them. Yeah. And maybe even like the body is part of the the healthy part too just so, just to clarify it's mumia is inside the bodies of mummified specimens from egypt that is what europeans believe however that right. is not correct okay there's no mumia even in the context really there's maybe a bitumen in the bandages or ceiling cuts but whatever the black mass is inside the body it has no relation to mumia interesting and and, and before we we move even forward with this i mean it's interesting interesting to see that mummification comes from mumia right like mumification yeah and the spanish word the word in spanish for mummy it's momia or mummy, yeah. it comes from mumia. Yeah, it's right? derived from from this chemical mumia, which actually has no connection whatsoever with Really? Mummies. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So all of these conclusions are put together, and beginning in the 12th century, people start boiling or grinding up mummified humans and animals to be bottled <laughs> and sold in apothecaries across Europe as mumia. So awesome. all across Egypt, both humans and animals, they're boiling them and grinding them up. And so European mumia, which, of course, is not actually mumia. It's literally just ground up mummies. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll yeah. call it mumia because they thought it was. It was <laughs> sold as a miraculous cure-all, as an immune booster, as an arthritis medication. Also, it was sometimes promoted as an aphrodisiac. Hell yeah. And it would be sold in a powder form or tinctures to be consumed. So they're eating it. So remember nice. before it was like as a bandage, now we're consuming it. So we have completely the wrong usage of completely the wrong thing here. Hey, listen, I'm feeling kind of down. Uh, I mean, my mom used to make what a chicken broth chicken stew a little chicken noodle soup a little chicken yeah, noodle yeah. soup for the soul no the the victorians were just using mummy noodle stew little ground mummy little ground, ground mummy, mummy. Yeah, yeah just throw it on there and call it a day frankly. can't hurt you know it can't, can't hurt, hurt. <laughs> <laughs> what are uh, they gonna do they're dead already that's I mean. true. I mean, and you know, you might you might be onto something here because let me tell you, Luis, Europeans love mumia like so much. They love it to the point that Egypt cannot realistically supply enough mummies to meet their demand almost nice. immediately. Hell yeah. To give you an idea of the scale here, in 1424, Egyptian government officials captured, tortured, and interrogated some grave robbers. These grave robbers admitted to stealing as many bodies as they could get their hands on, basically, and they were boiling them and then collecting the oils, etc separated them so they'd like skim the oil off the top then they were shipping that to europe for 25 gold pieces per 100 pounds so like the going quantity that this is being purchased in is per 100 pounds oh my goodness keep in mind this is all due to this original mistranslation that they believe
believe that mummies are having mumia added to them in the oh, mummification yeah. process, which is not correct. Oh, yes. And, and you know, even the, the people who took it further where they're saying, like, it's in the body cavities, those people had to be completely ignoring even the previous mistranslations because the original mistranslations were saying that it's, like, within the bandages. And some really? other people later were just like, by the way, it's all in the body cavity. It's in the skull. It's everywhere. I grind the whole thing up. <laughs> they're, they're just trying to make it easier on themselves, right? They're like, oh, it's, it's just in the bandages? No, no. Yeah. Let, let's take all of it. All of it. It's the whole thing. <laughs> but even this is not enough, Luis, because as I said, Egypt almost immediately cannot support this, this demand. So starting in the 13th century, people were already beginning to find ways to, quote unquote, produce their own supply. Nice. There's genuinely too many examples of this to list, but basically this would always consist of either mummifying fresh cadavers or stuffing them full of bitumen, just whatever random tar bitumen, yeah. then storing slash curing slash sun drying them for up to several years and then grinding them up to sell. Uh, and the methods of acquiring these bodies would range from everything from purchasing bodies from morgues to collecting bodies of criminals or the homeless or death by suicide, even sometimes purchasing slaves to kill them or in some cases literally just straight up murdering peasants and animals oh my to goodness. then grind them up and sell them as mumia, this, you know, kind of ancient mystical chemical. And, and you know, I, I think you've, you've also told me uh, or back in the day, you told me that there were people in the street just or in markets just selling mummies. Yeah. Or selling. Yeah, this just... was very commonplace. Any given apothecary or pharmacy that you would walk into or any market in yeah. Europe and in, in most European countries would have mumia. Like you would walk into a to a pharmacy in London in 1840 and then they would just have a mummy there and say, OK, you can buy this one. If you grind it down, you've got mumia, baby. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of these a lot of these places were doing things like all in-house too because later where there are some few accounts of people who kind of looked into what's like the process of this, sure. they would go to these apothecaries where they're selling mumia and be like, you know, what's what's your supply? And they'd be like, oh, come here in the back room where we have like four or five corpses hanging up, you know, four years Jeez. in the process of mummification that we got like some local suicide deaths. So <laughs> it was all just completely like, you know, disconnected from Egypt or anything original, right, even that yeah. could be tangential related to the original chemical almost immediately. Clandestine yeah. even, yeah. Yeah, so th this is very far from where we started, right? But not to worry because the thing is that as I said before about this this mistranslation as time goes on there seems to be less and less emphasis placed on the bitumen and its natural minerals and more and more emphasis placed on the actual decomposing body itself truly man that's more exciting I mean, <laughs> that, I mean it, it, let's on. be honest I mean who who, who are you going so to, much more witchy right who are you going to buy something from the person that tells you hey I just found this with a bunch of natural minerals or hey I've been drying up this mm. corpse for three years and Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, mm -hmm. it's got the stuff you want, the good stuff, if you will, the good stuff you want. The good stuff. So there was a Swiss German polymath named Paracelsius. He lived in the 16th century. He said that true pharmaceutical mumia must be, quote, the body of a man who did not die a natural death, but rather died an unnatural death with a healthy body and without sickness. That's, so he's like, you want the real whack. deal? You got to get someone who was just like... <laughs> fully killed yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they couldn't have died of natural causes they had they had to be terribly murdered yeah. Yeah. now let me take this a step further though also in the 16th century lived german physician oswald kroll who said mumia was quote the flesh of a man that perishes a violent death and kept for some time in the air my god and he also gave a detailed recipe for making a tincture of mumia Luis, can i walk you through oh. german physician oswald kroll's mumia tincture please do okay what, what wait what century is this guy from? This is 16th century. Okay, so here we go. Ingredients list first. And this is simple. You only need one ingredient, okay? One corpse of a red-haired man, approximately age 24, who has died from being hanged. Okay? Everyone, please go out to your local grocery stores. Pick yeah. that up. Once you have that, we start with the process. Step one, bludgeon the body on a breaking wheel. Okay. Easy. Step two, expose the body to air for several days. In Oswald's words, he says, quote, expose it to the influence of the sun and moon for two days, oh which I like. That's, that, nice. that's nice. Yeah. We move on then to step three, cut into small pieces and sprinkle with powdered myrrh and aloes. Then step four, soak in wine and let it dry out. And ta-da, mumia tincture, Woo! a.k.a. 
straight up cannibalism. Yeah, hell literally yeah. just cannibalism at this point, right? That's the word I mean, done. We don't even have. There's no bitumen being put in here at all. Just literally, here's how to cook this poor 24. You've got a spare man. dead person, redhead, mm-hmm. redhead person mm-hmm. next to you, uh, and don't know what to do with it. Now we've got a recipe. Hey, could be tasty. <laughs> so some some people are pretty quick to point out the hypocrisy of all this because at this point in time there's two groups who have been pretty largely demonized for cannibalism one of them is the native americans who have been viewed as savages based on these stories of cannibalism but in addition to this protestants have pretty historically ostracized catholics for their belief in transubstantiation and luis former former attendee of a catholic school can you tell us what transubstantiation means right yeah so so i i did spend a lot of my time in in catholic school you did your time i I did my time in catholic (laughs) school and i can tell you transubstantiation is a belief that for catholics mostly it's the belief that the body and blood of christ that you're eating during mass so the the body and blood aka the wafer the cracker and the wine during this process during mass gets literally transformed to the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. So that's a that's a very unique Catholic thought. Yeah. Right? That that the Protestants think it's ridiculous, but Catholics believe that during mass the cracker and the wine get transformed literally to the body of yeah yeah so yeah. so protestants see it as like a, a representative metaphorical thing catholics see it as this is literally the body of christ so protestants have ostracized catholics historically for cannibalism because they're literally yeah. eating the body of christ on a side note i think when i was thinking about this isn't this really weird to like get after someone else for something that they believe but you don't believe like because protestants think catholics believe they're committing cannibalism but i don't believe they're committing cannibalism but i'm mad that they believe they're committing cannibalism right well i mean <laughs> okay we, we can we can extrapolate a little more than this i mean think of the conquest of mexico and think of the conquest oh, of latin america where we we've got to bring in mexico to this all right yeah mexico. I mean, the Catholics came into the country saying, oh, you guys are eating humans? That's ridiculous. How about we don't do that? But at the same time, you guys are believing that you're eating actual meat and blood from your holy yeah. boy. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, th- there's been there's been talk and there's been accusations of cannibalism in the Catholic Church for, for ages. So, it, for me at least, it's not very hard to believe. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and that's kind of the point here is that there's a bit of hypocrisy going on here that at this point in time, you know, people are being demonized for these stories of cannibalism but also at the same time widely throughout Europe people are eating mumia which is literally just straight up cannibalism yeah so there are definitely some people throughout history because this practice goes on for like 600 years there are some people throughout that time period that point that out pretty much everybody is like get a load of this idiot and then everybody like laughs him out of academic society and never listens to him again and they're like what a lunatic they're like making fun of us for eating people and stuff some few people actually were considered credible the most notable critic of mumia was french naturalist pierre ballon he studied mumia and its history and its usage in embalming practices and he comes to some conclusions uh in a book that he writes conclusion number one the confusion around this is likely derived from a few mistranslations and he even goes through like a step-by-step of what happened he's pretty much spot on with the the various levels on how it got misinterpreted conclusion number two there is no evidence that ground mummies have any medicinal value whatsoever (laughs) conclusion number three there's no concrete evidence that Egyptians even used mumia in the mummification process and if they did it was definitely not in large quantities and then conclusion number four even putting all this aside the majority of mumia in European apothecaries is being locally produced which he thinks is super gross probably rightfully so yeah right so in summary not only is everyone in Europe wrong from about three or four different angles but they are also eating people fished out of the local gutters I mean boom you know, I, I think we, we've talked about this before, how back in the day, and by back in the day, I mean literally 100 years ago, when regulations were almost non-existent, right? And people just said, hey, let's just try something out. And uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, about, like, I love that. I love that the fact that back in the day, just everyone said, yeah, this is what it is. And yeah. uh, we're the experts. Sorry. And they're not biologists. They're just rich people. You know, I will say in researching this, I did get led down a really weird rabbit hole of all the medicine that was based on like using human material in some way. There was a really commonplace belief that if you buried a human skull, I mean, this was true that moss would grow above wherever you buried a human skull. 
people believed if you made a tea with that or various things that it would have these medicinal properties. It was just super interesting to hear about like the human history of using other humans medicinally and also how it differed regionally that in some regions of the world people had this ideology of like consuming other humans as you know absorbing their power and in Europe in a lot of cases it was more like after people die they're right. just like material that you can then use for a purpose. Right. And, and you know like this goes back I hate to, to go back to pre-Hispanic Mesoamerica. Do you hate to? No, I don't. But, yeah. you know, that that's what people say. And, Here uh, we are. <laughs> yeah. So back in, in pre-Hispanic times, I mean, you would have the strongest warrior of an opposing tribe. If you were to capture that warrior and kill that warrior, mm -hmm. then you would cook him up. Literally, like, you would, you would cut this person up and serve him to the leader of your clan, the leader of your tribe, mm -hmm. and to their families to say, listen, this person died with honor and we're drinking this or eating this stew, this man stew, because we want to absorb this person's power, this person's essence. This Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, if I didn't know any better, it makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's something that's certainly very primal about thinking of reabsorbing or consuming other humans in a way that can strengthen you or rejuvenate you. Mm -hmm. And by the way, anyone, if you want to hear more about about how this original tradition of making captured warriors into soup has persisted into modern culture. Go listen to Girls Gone Yar and Man Corn <laughs> Stew. It's a great episode. Yeah, we do have an episode on this. We've, we've talked about this. Before. We have. But that being said, back to the cannibalism at hand. Naturally. So despite all these conclusions from the French naturalist Pierre Ballon, people do not really care very much about this information. The cannibalism pretty much continues as it was going on before. Yeah. Hell so yeah. here's some examples of famous consumers of mumia. King Francis I, who was king of France in the 1500s, was said to have always carried a jar of rhubarb and mumia with him for first aid purposes. Catherine de' Medici, who was actually the daughter-in-law of Francis I, sent her personal servant to Egypt in 1549 to bring her back her own personal supply of mumia. I guess she doesn't nice. want to fight with the fluctuating market. Of course not. She's you buying know, she market She wants the real price. deal. Yeah. yeah. And you know there was some amount of like people who are really into what the specific body is obviously if it's the body of like a pharaoh or an actual egyptian nobleman that's a better deal so there were some cases of people like contracting a person to specifically go to egypt and like grave rob a pharaoh oh, or a nobleman's yeah. grave so they can have the premium mumia wow that must have been an awesome job back in the day oh man right you know professional grave robber professional grave robber yeah. of nobility yeah to i got a degree to in grave I. robbing yeah <laughs> Yeah, masters. Interestingly, Shakespeare also makes a few references to Mumia, actually nice. in a couple different works. So with a few exceptions, pretty much the entire Western scientific community continues believing in the healing powers of Mumia all the way until the 18th century. And that's not really when it ends completely. That's just when the majority opinion starts to shift. So the belief in the healing powers of Mumia persisted even until the early 20th century. In fact, in 1924, multinational drug company Merck & Co. listed a kilogram of Mumia for 12 gold marks. That's the latest example in history that I could find, but wow, even all the way up to 1924, they were like eating ground up people. Could be yummy. They said, hey, you know World War One? Yeah, that sucked, but how about we eat those victims? <laughs> yeah, it might have been the most devastating war at that point, but... It gave us a nice storage, a nice supply of mumia. There's a way we can turn this bad boy around. <laughs> exactly. That's nice. I mean, I, I, I like just the early 19th century, 18th century belief of just these random yeah. items that would cure you. And to be fair, you're reaching a point with the Industrial Revolution and with the discovery of microbes in water and the discovery of actual other items that can actually heal you. You're, you're figuring out this, this, these new scientific discoveries. So it's a bit of a, of a scientific discovery Wild West where anything, mm -hmm. anything is a potential cure for different things, right? Yeah. So I, I don't blame the 16, 17, 18th century people and thinking, oh, hey, mumia might be the wonder remedy that we need right now. We've got all these other incredible, almost revolutionary ways to heal ourselves that mumia is just one way to do so. Right? Yeah. And, and, and even if it's not mumia, even if it's just corpses and cadavers, that's that's what it takes, right? Like, I, I again, we've gone back to this lack of regulation and just thinking mm -hmm. whatever we can do to, to help our species out and move it forward, we'll do it. Yeah, you know, I think half of it is the lack of 
spread of information. You know, it seems crazy to think that grinding up mummies to eat them could have some medicinal purpose. And by the way, this is why today there's a scarcity of mummies is because we ate too many of them. Really? Yeah. But, you know, if you think about <laughs> that, okay, maybe there's only like a few translations into commonly spoken languages in Europe of the, the sources of mumia. And, you know, there's only three and they're all mistranslated. Well, it's easy to see how you could like get caught up in believing that actually this crazy thing does have maybe some medicinal sure. properties. Then on the other side of it, I think it's interesting to see like how science and, you know, kind of beliefs in magic or witchcraft or the power yeah. of the spirit used to be more intertwined that yeah. even though, you know, there was supposedly some scientific basis for why this was medicinally good for you. We went again, remember from like using this as a band-aid to you're eating it to cure almost everything. I have to think that there's something that's related in the mind of like, you know, consuming the power of people or the spirit of people that like just universally, that's something that we used to have more connected to. To be our fair, beliefs. I think it goes back to the Western world's idea of Orientalism, really mythologized or even fetishized just the, the, the East and their different kind of more esoteric ways of healing things and putting a, a great emphasis in those things that maybe did not do much of a difference, but we want to, frankly, find any ways to solve things. So I think it goes back even to colonialist ideals of saying, maybe we don't have it all figured out. Let's try to see what these quote-unquote exotic places are doing to heal yeah. their wounds, right? It's an important topic. It's important for people to know the reason why we do not have that many mummies is because we <laughs> ate too many. That fact needs to never be forgotten by everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we do forget just how insane Victorian yeah, we era. We all need to every day take accountability for the fact that we ate too many mummies. It's ridiculous, <laughs> man. So, remember how in the last couple of episodes, or I had an episode not too long ago, where I like to focus on doppelgangers, right? And I like to focus on people yeah. that looked alike throughout history and how that can potentially alter history. Because right now, I mean, we're too used to having documentation of every single thing we've done ever. Right. And back in the day, I mean, I believe John Mullaney had a joke about it not too long ago or a couple of years ago saying, how was crime solving before DNA testing was around? Yeah. People were just going on on their best hunch. Right. And a lot of crimes, of course, went unpunished and and people lived freely even after doing some of the most heinous crimes. So this kind of tries to go into this the same vein. A lot of the ways that a lot of these crimes happen is through doppelgangers. A lot of people mm -hmm. looked similar to each other. They just said, oh, you look similar to this person. You must be this person, even if they may not be. Anyway, all that intro done. The reason I got interested in these doppelganger stories is because I saw on, of all places, Twitter. Okay. I saw a story about King Umberto of Italy, King Umberto I. Okay. So this is a story I heard from King Umberto and his long lost double. Okay. So the year is January of 1878. All right. It's a good year. Good year. Uh, when King Umberto I of Italy assumed the throne. Now, back in this time, he was uh, a well-known regent of the time. He forged allegiances, allegiances with people like Austria-Hungary, the Empire of Germany at the time. All the classics. And he, he tried to push all this expansionist policy and trying to get a foothold in everywhere he could find, trying to bring the Roman Empire, the Italian Empire, back to the heights. Mm. Quick side tangent, Italy has has been trying to become the Roman Empire for the last 500 years, and it's hilarious that they can't. Yeah. They seriously cannot. I mean, it's it's tough. I feel like they really have their work cut out for them, you know? Re-achieving re the Roman Empire is no small task, you know? <laughs> they really set right. the bar high. Like, I don't blame them for taking several attempts. I also don't blame them for, like, picking the same goal every time. I mean, what else are you going to go for if you're Italy, right? It's the Roman Empire, pretty much. Morally, if you had the biggest empire in the world at some point, and then all of a sudden you're just remembered for your wine and your partying... And pasta. And pasta. That must be hard for the general Italian psyche, it's right? It's not great. It's not great. It's not great. Well, anyway, back when Italy was still ruled by kings and before the Italian unification, so in the late 19th century, Italy was still ruled by kings. Right. And at this point, King Umberto I was the king in Our charge. Our man. Don't we love him? Our man. 
Now this this starts getting crazy when in July 28th of 1900, King Umberto was eating a meal in a restaurant in the Italian town of Monza, and he was accompanied by a trustworthy aide. Nothing seemed to be out of the ordinary. He was just eating, hanging out in a restaurant, nothing going crazy, until all of a sudden he looks at the owner of the establishment, who naturally went out to King Umberto I and said, hey, I want to thank you for sharing a meal in my establishment. I mean, this is such a great honor. At this point, Umberto and his aide freak out and start thinking, oh my goodness, this man looks exactly like King Umberto I. (laughs) This restaurant owner has a striking similarity to Umberto I. Seriously. Wow. Like, I I, I don't know. They, They just were were blown away. Yeah, noticeably um, so. Notably so, to the point where Umberto I went up to his wife, who was also eating, and said, what do you think? And the wife said, this person looks just like my husband. And, you know, (laughs) naturally, King Umberto I was known for his great mustache. Okay. He was known for having great whiskers, and this owner in Monza, Italy, also had these great whiskers, and mm. they just look so similar. If only he'd known, he could have waited till the king like went to the bathroom or something, and then you know done the old <laughs> right, switcheroo back. real quick. Yeah. yeah. Well, the craziest part, Kurt, is that this restaurant owner was also named Umberto. What? And as soon as they started talking to each other, King Umberto and restaurant owner Umberto started talking to each other and found more similarities. Right. They also had the same middle name. <laughs> it gets a little crazier than that. Okay. Both Umbertos were married on the very same day. Okay. Which, pretty crazy, yeah. but not unheard of. They were both married in the same day, and they were both married to a woman named Margarita. Okay. So Umberto the king and Umberto the restaurant owner married on the same day to a woman named Margarita. Interesting. And not only that, Umberto the restaurateur had opened this restaurant in Monza on the exact day of King Umberto's coronation, which had been in January in 1878. Wow. And these connections just started seeming more and more uncanny. Yeah. They started talking. They continuing talking. And they, they, they just realized they're almost the same person. Yeah. Not only do they look alike, they've married women that have the very first name, and a lot of dates seem to line up. But where it starts getting a little bit crazier is that King Umberto I was so entranced, enamored by this meeting with this random restaurant owner in Monza, Italy. Right. He said, hey, I want to attend this athletics show, which I'm going to be hosting tomorrow evening. I'm going to be hosting this, this great Italian athletic show to show the might of the potential Italian empire. I want you to yes, be there. Yes, the might of the potential Italian <laughs> empire. <laughs> A lot of Italian politics are governed by just, let's figure The might of the out. potential yeah, Italian the potential empire. Yeah. Itali- Italian empire, right? So he said, hey, Umberto, I want you to be here at this, this athletic show. And the next day at the athletic show, Umberto, the restaurateur, did not show. Hmm. He did not show at all. Okay. Umberto, naturally, the king, said, what a travesty. I mean, I invited this person personally. Why won't they show up to the king's invitation to an athletic show in Rome? Right. Well, it turns out that he was found the next day shot. On, up until this point, unconfirmed circumstances. Hmm. Right? So okay. Umberto, the restaurant owner, was shot and killed that day but where it gets weirder is that that same day allegedly at around the same time that king umberto the first heard the news of the death of restaurateur umberto right king umberto the first was shot was assassinated Whoa. by an italian man named gaetano breschi or breschi he was an Italian-American anarchist. Oh, his who... name wasn't Umberto? I'm out. I'm sorry, I'm out. right? You lost me. But he had been shot by an anarchist who was very much upset about this radical expansionist rhetoric and and different and and the the paths that King Umberto had taken mm. to to achieve this. So King Umberto was shot the next day by this anarchist. Wow. That restaurateur was also shot by 
a random situation. Wow. Right? And and these two people, as time went on, theories went around that they were twins. Theories went around that they were long-lost siblings that somehow found their ways somewhere mm. in the Italian peninsula. Yeah. And... It, it has also been reported that the person that killed Umberto the King, Gaetano Bresci, that's assa- this assassin, was had been living in the U.S. where he worked in an anarchist newspaper where by arriving back in Italy weeks before the king's killing, he had just weeks before he killed the king, he decided he was going to kill the king. So he oh. didn't come back to Italy thinking of killing the king until weeks prior. It was just a happy accident. Right? So so <laughs> both people were fully shot on the same day yeah. by the, these reasons. And huh. also, King Umberto I and Umberto the restaurateur both had sons, and both sons were named Vittorio. Oh, okay. And both sons were also giving commendations for their heroism in the military twice. Okay. So in 1866 and 1870, right? So there were yeah. just all of these incredible coincidences, right? So who knows? Maybe did King Umberto have a twin, but one of the twins was sent out to live in just regular Italian life while the other one was treated as a king. There's a lot of theories that can sprout yeah. for this, but we really cannot know for sure. Did Umberto the first and his twin live such interconnected lives but never knew each other? No one will ever know, mm-hmm. right? However, I wanted to tell you this story for an actual episode of Unbelievable. And I wanted to to share these this story of coincidences in, an, in a regular episode of Unbelievable. Right. But I found it almost impossible to do so. So we like to take pride in the fact that we really are not as professional as we probably should be with this show, right? (laughs) But the only reference and the only source I could find to this story of Umberto and his long-lost doppelganger was on Ripley's Unbelievable or Not or Ripley's Believe It or Not website. And ever since then, because this was published back in the 80s, Beyond that, there really are no stories other than this. Yeah. So did Ripley's make this up and everyone just went along with it? Wow. Who knows? But this story and the reason I'm telling all of this is mostly to show that a lot of the stories and a lot of the incredible things that we hear throughout history maybe are made up. This has become a legend. This has become myth in King Umberto's history. But we don't know if it was a real thing. Because the first time that we can hear about this is during the Ripley's Believe It or Not yeah. website article or the magazine article that they had back in the 80s, 90s. And right. I wanted, I really wanted to show this story because it's so much fun. <laughs> you know, these two people named Umberto with a wife named Margarita married on the same day, both with sons named Vittorio that won awards in the army in 1866 and 1870, but we can't. And to this day, people are not sure if it happened. Interesting. But it's a story that gets continuously told and told time and again yeah. about Umberto I and his alleged doppelganger that just keeps resonating through history. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's definitely a story that I've heard some parts of before. Regardless, you know, it's worrying when there's only one source and you can't find the original source on something. I do think a lot about like, it's very easy to look back at people of the past and be like, haha, they thought all the gods were on this mountain and they never even check but then i also am like there's probably a bunch of stuff like that that we believe that like the people of the future be like what idiots so i don't want to point fingers i'm 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 worried you know and i know that this story is is potentially fake and potentially mythologized however this goes to show just the the dangerous it is in believing these guess pop history capsules Mm -hmm. and regardless of how much we make fun of actually saying correct history and potentially miss (laughs) misinforming our audience we do our best to to get the most accurate stories around yeah so stories like this and stories as unbelievable as this do exist and they're out there but a lot of the stories that are made up are literally made up by other sources and i mean in this case ripley's believe it or not i don't want to bash on them but I mean, who knows? Did yeah. they make this up? Did they actually quote sources? Right. No one knows. Right. right. That's true. First we first we get the facts, then we get the smoke and mirrors. Good that you say, like, as much as we like to joke about it, we do have a quite a bit amount of journalistic integrity that we actually, mm-hmm. the true stories, we actually want them to be Right, true. right. <laughs> so this story seems almost too good to be true. Yeah, that's too bad. I really wish there was the, the, the Umberto duo. 
I'm big pulling for the Umberto duo. I, we were really looking for the Umberto duo, but luckily we can find stories in history about doppelgangers. That's true. Like the ones we told That's in, in our episode about our outlaw criminal that <laughs> turned himself in for the bounty. But it, yeah, it's interesting. Just the, I guess this is just a public service announcement of look beyond what you just yeah. read, what you read in websites and try to find the truth of different things because mm-hmm. again I was really eager to find this out for you and when I started to research to to develop this episode I started finding out that most of the leads most of the evidence I had was leading nowhere yeah it was almost non-existent so I I cannot share the story that I cannot guarantee to be truth right but if it is Kurt Oh my God, this is so much fun. I know. I know. And, 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 you know, we love to say that we want to live in a world where these kind of impossibilities are true. Mm-hmm. But while this impossibility is not true, we have countless others. That's true. Examples of impossibilities that are true. And I don't know. I think that's the joy of the, this podcast, that we can at least share the, the, the fun stories that almost seem fake, but are indeed true. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is really frustrating. I've definitely experienced that as well, where I'm like, I really want to be able to believe that this story is true so I can tell it. But I just can't for sure say that this actually happened. But then it is on, you know, on the other side, really rewarding when you actually go out and find some crazy thing that you're like, holy cow, how have I not already heard about this? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's you know, it's it has its ups and downs. So, hey, this this is our, our, our personal validation for you. If you want to believe that story believe it true let's let's all pretend that we live in a more magical world true. Than, we, that, than the one we do you know i think like we've said before ignorance is bliss but we tend to focus on the ignorance part let's focus on the bliss part yeah i feel very blissful thinking yes. that this story about king umberto the first and his famous doppelganger is true and that's a more magical world i choose to live in right? yes absolutely we are we are big <laughs> bliss over there and to that point enough enough learning enough information because i think i think finally it is time for some games Ooh. it is time for the comeback of uh, a previous game that some people may remember called luis reaction noises however at this point we got a lot of noises in here so i think it may be more appropriate to call this game no context needed. I'm going to play Luis a clip from a previous episode. All these clips will be from season two. And then I'm going to give Luis multiple choice of what the context of the clip is or what he's reacting to. And Luis will do his best and struggle right. through figuring out what that is. And, you know, we've we've already established that whenever we we record this podcast, after immediately after it's recorded, I completely blank on the info that we yes. talked about. Like, I have no idea. I love listening to this podcast on whatever platforms I do because I have no idea what I say. Your brain is like an Etch-A-Sketch in a dryer. (laughs) And with that spirit, I've got six questions for you, Luis. Let's see if you can do better than last time. Here's the first clip. No. Wow. I mean, tough back-to-back episodes. Last episode, you're a big cannibalism. (laughs) This time, you're a big guy i mean come on Luis. can we stop, stop the podcast it. any more times what are you trying to do to oh, me no here? no jeez <laughs> well so Luis, you may notice there is a, a part censored from that so here's what i have to ask of you in addition to cannibalism what are you accidentally promoting today Luis? is it a animal cruelty b eugenics c fascism or d just a little bit of slavery oh eugenics fascism or slavery this is like a a quiz just to test out the worst of humanity isn't it kurt (laughs) oh man Uh, considering everything we've talked about in this podcast i'm gonna go with eugenics maybe you think you've accidentally supported well we know you've accidentally supported eugenics but you think in this (laughs) clip you've accidentally supported eugenics? yes yes i'm gonna that's my final answer well i'm here to tell you Luis. unfortunately in this clip you accidentally supported fascism here's the full clip no he's helping the british He's helping the British. He, he's helping the British because, again, remember, Antifa That's hates, the, true, he, true. hates the Nazis. True. Hates not the Nazis. big on fa. So he, not, not big on fa, as you really should not be, right? Like, <laughs> as you really should be. Wait, hold on. The double negative is working. I'm not, for, I'm not pro-fa. I'm anti-fa. Now, wow. I mean, tough back-to-back episodes. Last episode, you're a big cannibalism. <laughs> this time, you're a big fog guy. I mean, come on, Luis. Can we stop, stop the it. podcast any more times? What are you trying to do to no, me? No, no. Jeez. 
we've all know I've been on Tifa this whole time. It's just been a miscommunication. It's been a misunderstanding, Kurt. Come on. The, I mean, it's a Freudian slip, but somehow you managed to have a Freudian slip every episode is the thing. That was from the Lieutenant of Bullfighting and the Double Agent of Sex Appeal, in which we were talking about our boy Dusko Popov, who was, right. in fact, very Antifa. <laughs> yeah. Big Antifa. Listen, just for the record, I am a, a pretty big Antifa kind of guy. It's good to see you nail it this Listen, time. I, I am. I am against against fascism generally. Glad we got that covered. And um, yeah, I, I want to make sure that this podcast knows where I where I stand. But you're you're putting me on the spot, man. I'm I'm up against the 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 ropes dude and you're you're beating me <laughs> right to it yeah i know that was pretty i really came out swinging on the first one here well we'll move on to a little more softball of a clip dealing mostly with your um massive hubris here's the second clip that, that just means i'm i'm just as good as the gods yeah better better yeah. even yeah maybe <laughs> i don't know what this whole hubris thing is about i'm i'm, I'm above it all you really are icarus aren't you <laughs> be quiet kurt continue <laughs> so, Luis, what scheme has you so excited that you have the audacity to compare yourself to a mythological figure? Is it A, after being offered a pardon, Pirate Charles Vane responded by sinking several of the governor's boats and sailing away laughing? B, Lord Dryden buying a pet bear in defiance of Cambridge University's no-dog policy? C, corrupt South Carolina Governor Benjamin Burton cutting federal taxes by instead secretly keeping them for himself? Or D, Uba Butler successfully making his garden shed the number one restaurant in all of London? <laughs> and again, as always, all of these options are things that truly happen in the podcast. <laughs> None of these are made up. <laughs> these, are, these are all things that, ha that, that have happened. That's the worst part, Kurt. Come on. I know that all of these things are true, man. Come on. Oh, shoot. I think that I can successfully get away from the governor. I think that's something that I can do. You're going with C, corrupt South Carolina governor Benjamin Burton, cutting federal taxes by instead secretly keeping them for himself. Yes. It is, in fact, D, Uba Butler successfully <laughs> making his garden shed the number one restaurant in all of London. Here's the full clip. He's at, he's at the very top now. There's somehow even more calls than before. And now Uba is at like this crossroads where he's like, what do I do now? Because he's kind of like the dog that caught a car. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you ever expected to get this far and you can't go higher than number one. What else are you going to do with the bit after this? That, that just means I'm, I'm just as good as the gods. Yeah. Better, better yeah. even, yeah. maybe. I don't know what this whole hubris thing is about. I'm, I'm, I'm above it all. You really are Icarus, aren't you? <laughs> Be quiet, Kurt, continue. About this Icarus thing. What's about this gods thing? I'm above it all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Listen, again, as I've mentioned before, how I forget everything that I say in this podcast after I've recorded it for posterity. This can potentially come and bite me in the butt if I plan on running for public office someday in my life. I mean, that just shows how little you remember because within that episode, it did come bite you in the butt. I forget what it was, but later you saw, made some mistake and you said, oh, Oh, I feel the hot sun upon my waxen wings like the drama queen that you are <laughs> so you didn't even make it like a full 30 minutes away from that statement that's what that's why I know if, I, if I'm ever in a in a mythological situation where I'm testing my hubris against the gods I know I'm going to end up like Prometheus with my <laughs> liver being eaten out by crows for the rest of eternity I, I hate to say this Kurt but I think I'm the proverbial person to be eaten by ravens for the rest of eternity pushing up a stone or up a hill for eternity because i'm i'm just too stupid to figure out that the gods are better than me you have always felt very tragic protagonist i will say that really fits for you and you're <laughs> you're really living up to it because uh you're zero for two here so far oh, no. let's see if we can turn it around here's clip number three is that a bit or is that the story tell me now or tell me never what no 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 so, Luis, tell me, what fact is causing me to experience a deep sense of discomfort in this clip? Is it A, as the only surviving male on the nearly deserted island, lighthouse keeper Victoriano Alvarez declared himself king and began a reign of terror? B, bananas are slightly radioactive. C, despite numerous people taste testing the mysterious flesh jelly that fell from the sky and several days of procedure, the finest minds of Kentucky were still not able to determine whether or not it was meat. Or D, international spy Dusko Popov likely could have prevented Pearl Harbor had he not had the misfortune of meeting J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, Kurt. This, 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 this 
multiple choice is so disheartening because all of these multiple choice answers could be true in a different <laughs> question, right? Like, that's the worst part, man. Oh, man. I think I'm going to go with A. A is, is the correct answer uh, with with this whole ordeal, man. I, I'm i feeling very vulnerable at this moment. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, but I'm going to go with A. Well, I think it's the answer. finally... Finally, you've hit gold, Luis. It is A, and that is from The Traveling Bohemians and the Battle for <laughs> Booby Island. Here's the full clip. Now, like I said, the only people that remain here are women, children, and the lighthouse keeper, who is named Victoriano Alvarez. Okay? So mysterious. It's an island. There's no trees on it. Only the women and children are left alive. And the lighthouse keeper. And a sole lighthouse keeper that proclaimed himself king. <laughs> Of the island. Is that a bit or is that the story? No, he Tell proclaimed himself out. king. Victoriano Alvarez what? proclaimed himself king of the island and go growing mad with power, started raping and murdering as he saw fit. No, 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 no. Okay, I feel better about this because, you know, whenever you were giving about the, the options, uh, you said, hey, Victoriano Alvarez. That's a very specific name, Kurt. So, <laughs> you know, I, I feel good about this one. Yeah. Listen, I think that goes to show just the, the quality of stories that we present in this program are so insane. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I, I personally, and having recorded this show, do not know if what I've talked about is correct or not. I, I really don't know. Some could say it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Trademark. But that makes you uh, one correct, two missed. Let's uh, move on to number four. Here's the next clip. (laughs) Marc Cubon. Marc Cubon. Cubon. Cut this out later, (laughs) Luis. Please don't do us like that. If, if I'm not I'm known if I'm not known for anything, Kurt, the only thing I'd be known for is just my ability to mispronounce French. Now, <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning of the clip, Kurt, we were saying Mark Cuban, right? We Mark, were, we were. Mark Cuban, and that's and that's precisely what I want to ask you about, Luis. Why are we badly pronouncing Mark Cuban's name in French? Is it a because you said everything would have gone better for France if they had just had crypto? B because Jean-Henri, French merchant of exotic makeup, seems like he could use a business mentor. C, because I think that the old French patent system sounds a lot like Shark Tank. Or D, this clip is an outtake. Who in the world knows what we were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm thinking C. I think the person that came up with French patent law could have had an advisor to, to tell him just how just incredibly well his message would have been taken across the world. Yeah, you're going with the, with the Shark Tank parallel. That is, in fact, correct, Luis. Here's the full clip. The system in place of the patents in France was a little different than it is now. In France, if someone had a good idea, they went to the uh, Académie Française, uh, Mm -hmm. which is the French Academy, the French Science Institute, and if the French government thought it was a good idea, they would pay you for it, okay? Mm. So... So it they, really just, they was, had like Shark Tank like way before it was cool. Basically, basically, <laughs> exactly. you'd have to go pitch. <laughs> you'd have to go pitch your idea to the Academy Francaise. The weird part then, is Mark Cuban was still there and like the same age too. Just French. Just French, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marc so, Cuban. So, Marc Cuban. Cut this out later, <laughs> Luis. Please don't do us like that. <laughs> if, if I'm not, I'm known. If I'm not known for anything, Kurt. The only thing I'd be known for is just my ability to mispronounce French. Now, <laughs> oh my God, Kurt. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I should have known. I should I should stick to my, my routine of not knowing how French is pronounced and yet being very confident that I know how to pronounce <laughs> it. <laughs> yes. That was a clip from Mexican water refugees and bogus French patent laws. Yeah. 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 A classic. Good. So before we do this next clip, Luis, I have to tell you, this is a little bit of, I guess you could say, a smash cut of some reactions. It's, it's over the course of 40 seconds, you went through just a range of emotions. And this is all of it smushed together. Oh, Let's dear. listen. Yeah. What? Oh, no. Oh, wh- what? No. So <laughs> tell me, Louise, what has got you on an emotional roller coaster this time? Is it A, lead ingots retrieved from a sunken Roman ship were used in antimatter testing? B, 
To avoid child endangerment charges, orphan keeper Dr. Webster assigned custody of his orphans over to a kangaroo. C. Hearing that pirate hunter Foulweather Jack used to literally cure men like Salami as a method of interrogation. Or D. Learning that a major main's exhumed casket was mysteriously empty, casting doubt on her existence in its entirety. Oh, God, Kurt, Brutal. come on. This sucks because this is all stuff we've talked about before. Yes, these all, these all happened. Oh, jeez. Okay, I'm going to go with A. A, what was A? Lead ingots retrieved from a sunken yeah. Roman ship were used in antimatter testing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's That seems too far gone for me to to have this sort of visceral reaction. Yeah, at the and, and yeah, this is, of course, referring to our story in which we learned that after the first test detonation of the nuclear bomb, yeah. all of the steel in the world was permanently slightly polluted. All of the lead in the world is always polluted, so they had to steal some from a sunken Roman ship to use for yeah. some, some scientific antimatter testing. That, that seems, that seems something that... Would would surprise me very much so yeah Kurt. but that is not what surprised you in this what? clip Luis. No! it was in fact d learning that a major mains exhumed casket was mysteriously empty casting doubt on her existence entirely here's the clip in 1995, the city of New Orleans finally grants Michelle permission to exhume a major main's casket. Yes. And drum roll, please. Yes. The casket Wait. is empty. What? Not like there's no prototype in it. Like no prototype, no body, no nothing <gasps> in it. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Step zero. Oh. Can we prove a may existed? Oh, wh what? No. We have no body. We have no prototype. There's no surviving copies of these local newspaper stories that she was, you know, like on page five in. There's no surviving photographs of her. There's no paintings of her. What? Okay. Uh, there's no birth certificate. Weirdly, there's no death certificate, which the city should definitely have. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's tragic. <laughs> Listen, you know, if anything, this makes me feel better because I know that I've got some really cool stories that I don't remember saying. That's true. Right? So I, I can say these again at some point in my life. You should listen to our podcast. You'd like it. You really think so? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's right up your alley. Believe me. Yeah. Unbelievable yeah. podcast. Yeah. With Kurt and Louise. <laughs> the history podcast I need to listen to. <laughs> my goodness. Jeez, you're so right, Kurt. And the thing is, I do listen to the this podcast, but my ability to keep information in my brain is limited yeah so. well i will say that sometimes with my made-up stories i like to try to specifically short circuit your brain that was a clip from the stolen prototype and demon dog possession yeah and in that story i do remember at that part specifically i was like how much mental and emotional damage can i cause to Luis by making him think the protagonist of this story never existed <laughs> yeah, to be honest kurt you do such a good Good job on this because I am a very gullible man. I'm highly motivated to hurt you, I will say. And and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and once again, I like to believe that we live in a more magical world than mm. the one that we live in, full yes. of sadness and anger. And I like to believe that we live in a world where random things happen and random right. things happen that influence great things in the world. Maybe that's the reason I love this podcast so much. Who knows, Kurt? But my, <laughs> my God, it's, it's, you know, you don't really know your issues until they're all laid out in front of you. And this is what this feels like. Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Well, that puts you at two correct and three missed. So this is the last one. Chance to break even, yeah, Luis. Yeah. Here's the last clip. Let's hear it. Okay. So go ahead. Process. <laughs> Process, go ahead. <laughs> this man's... That's... First of all... So, I know I'm not giving you a lot to work with here, but Luis, in this clip, what were you needing a second to process? Is it A, German femme fatale, Valberga Ostreich, was nicknamed Dolly for her charming demeanor, B, Captain Franklin and his men ate their own boots with a side of algae to survive an Arctic expedition. C, one of the musicians at Senator Georgie Henderson's party got sick from, quote, some bad snake oil. Or D, after Jean-Henri's death, the Puerto Rican government likely inherited copious amounts of crushed insects, mercury, and hippocampus blood. Oh, no, Kurt. Listen, from, from my current reaction to this, I think the last one were the Spanish government being surprised that they just got uh, just inundated with such a great amount of just bugs that that <laughs> that sounds incredible kurt please let let it be that you're feeling the the jean henri accidentally passing on who knows what of toxic chemicals yes. makeup ingredients and lost yeah. formulas and potions exactly well 
That is incorrect, Luis. No! The correct answer is you needed a second to process German femme fatale von Brugge <laughs> Österreich and her charming nickname Dolly. Here's the full oh, clip. Oh no. So our villain's name is Wahlberger Österreich. Her nickname is Dolly. Okay, so Dolly was born. <laughs> Go ahead, process, process, go ahead. <laughs> this man's, uh, that's, first of all, very, very villainous name to begin with. But man, mm. who who decided to give her that nickname? It's like naming your child Helmut Bloodhand. But he goes by Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kurt, come on. I, you know, <laughs> what I love about this clip is that you know, you know what's coming up. You say, okay, go on process yeah. <laughs> process what's happening you understand how my brain works Kurt and that I think that's what hurts the most frankly yeah well I mean when I first read you know in in one sentence then the other that her name was Wahlberg Osterreich nicknamed Dolly I felt the same emotion so I knew that you were going to need to let that you know marinate for a second and whatnot so ultimately Luis on the quiz I think uh you didn't do worse than last time hey that's so good. that's so that's, that's good, good. We're, we're maintaining but uh yeah this is this is a lot of fun I always I always love doing this with you and uh, getting to see how <laughs> truly little you remember. I, I seriously <laughs> block everything I speak in this podcast after I say it. Like, <laughs> if you if you come up to us as, I mean, who, we don't have a lot of fans, but if, if you come up to us as a fan of the show and say, hey, remember when you said this and this and that? There's a big chance I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, people come up to you and they're like, you know, the episode where you were you were talking about the the waterways in Mexico and stuff, that was really interesting. And you're like, where am I? <laughs> who, who are you? <laughs> d- d- wait, hold on. You listen to this podcast? <laughs> That's a bad move on your part, frankly. That's true. That's true. But that being said, everyone, if you enjoyed listening, please continue listening, even yeah. though it may be, according to Lisa, a bad move on your part. Bad Leave move. us a review if you liked it. Tell your friends. If you want more info, you can check us out on Instagram at UnbelievablePod or Twitter at UnbelievablePC. We'll post some bonus content there. And as always, thanks for listening. And please, if you take away one thing from this, do not eat mummies for medicinal purposes. Believe me, if there was something, we'd have found it by now, okay? And for the love of God, do not come up to me if you know me and ask about this podcast. As we figured out, I do not know what's going on, ever. Avoid Luis, avoid eating mummies. That is all. Go about your business. Goodbye. (laughs) See ya! (laughs)